Part two, chapter three of O Pioneers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. O Pioneers by Willa Cather. Part two, Neighboring Fields. Chapter three. Alexandra was to hear more of Ivar's case, however. On Sunday her married brothers came to dinner. She had asked them for that day because Emil, who hated family parties, would be absent, dancing at Amadie Chevalier's wedding, up in the French country. The table was set for company in the dining-room, where highly varnished wood and coloured glass and useless pieces of china were conspicuous enough to satisfy the standards of the new prosperity. Alexandra had put herself into the hands of the Hanover furniture dealer, and he had conscientiously done his best to make her dining-room look like his display-window. She said, frankly, that she knew nothing about such things, and she was willing to be governed by the general conviction that the more useless and utterly unusable objects were, the greater their virtue as ornament. That seemed reasonable enough. Since she liked plain things herself, it was all the more necessary to have jars and punch-bowls and candlesticks in the company-rooms for people who did appreciate them. Her guests liked to see about them these reassuring emblems of prosperity. The family party was complete except for Emil, and Oscar's wife, who, in the country phrase, was not going anywhere just now. Oscar sat at the foot of the table, and his four tow-headed little boys, aged from twelve to five, were ranged at one side. Neither Oscar nor Lou has changed much. They have simply, as Alexandra said of them long ago, grown to be more and more like themselves. Lou now looks the older of the two. His face is thin and shrewd and wrinkled about the eyes, while Oscar's is thick and dull. For all his dullness, however, Oscar makes more money than his brother, which adds to Lou's sharpness and uneasiness, and tempts him to make a show. The trouble with Lou is that he is tricky, and his neighbors have found out that, as Ivar says, he has not a fox's face for nothing. Politics being the natural field for such talents, he neglects his farm to attend conventions and to run for county offices. Lou's wife, formerly Annie Lee, has grown to look curiously like her husband. Her face has become longer, sharper, more aggressive. She wears her yellow hair in a high pompadour, and is bedecked with rings and chains and beauty-pins. Her tight, high-heeled shoes give her an awkward walk, and she is always more or less preoccupied with her clothes. As she sat at the table, she kept telling her youngest daughter to— be careful now, and not drop anything on mother. The conversation at the table was all in English. Oscar's wife, from the malaria district of Missouri, was ashamed of marrying a foreigner, and his boys do not understand a word of Swedish. Annie and Lou sometimes speak Swedish at home, but Annie is almost as much afraid of being caught at it as ever her mother was of being caught barefoot. Oscar still has a thick accent but Lou speaks like anybody from Iowa. 
"'When I was in Hastings to attend the convention,' he was saying, "'I saw the superintendent of the asylum, and I was telling him about Ivar's symptoms. He says Ivar's case is one of the most dangerous kind, and it's a wonder he hasn't done something violent before this.' Alexandra laughed good-humouredly. "'Oh, nonsense, Lou! The doctors would have us all crazy if they could.' "'Ivar's queer, certainly, but he has more sense than half the hands I hire.' Lou flew at his fried chicken. "'Oh, I guess the doctor knows his business, Alexandra. He was very much surprised when I told him how you'd put up with Ivar. He says he's likely to set fire to the barn any night, or to take after you and the girls with an axe.' Little Signa, who was waiting on the table, giggled and fled to the kitchen. Alexandra's eyes twinkled. That was too much for Signa, Lou. We all know that Ivar's perfectly harmless. The girls would as soon expect me to chase them with an axe. Lou flushed and signaled to his wife. All the same, the neighbors will be having a say about it before long. He may burn anybody's barn. It's only necessary for one property owner in the township to make a complaint, and he'll be taken up by force. You'd better send him yourself, and not have any hard feelings." Alexandra helped one of her little nephews to gravy. "'Well, Lou, if any of the neighbors try that, I'll have myself appointed Ivar's guardian and take the case to court, that's all. I am perfectly satisfied with him.' "'Pass the preserves, Lou,' said Annie, in a warning tone. She had reasons for not wishing her husband to cross Alexandra too openly." "'But don't you sort of hate to have people see him around here, Alexandra?' she went on with persuasive smoothness. "'He is a disgraceful object, and you're fixed up so nice now. It sort of makes people distant with you, when they never know when they'll hear him scratching about. My girls are as afraid as death of him, aren't you, Milly dear?' Milly was fifteen fat and jolly and pompadoured, with a creamy complexion, square white teeth, and a short upper lip. She looked like her grandmother Bergson, and had her comfortable and comfort-loving nature. She grinned at her aunt, with whom she was a great deal more at ease than she was with her mother. Alexandra winked a reply. Milly needn't be afraid of Ivar. She's an especial favourite of his. In my opinion, Ivar has just as much right to his own way of dressing and thinking as we have. But I'll see that he doesn't bother other people. I'll keep him at home, so don't trouble any more about him, Lou. I've been wanting to ask you about your new bathtub. How does it work?' Annie came to the fore to give Lou time to recover himself. "'Oh, it works something grand. I can't keep him out of it. He washes himself all over three times a week now, and uses all the hot water. I think it's weakening to stay in as long as he does. You ought to have one, Alexandra.' "'I'm thinking of it. I might have one put in the barn for Ivar, if it will ease people's minds. But before I get a bathtub, I'm going to get a piano for Milly.' Oscar, at the end of the table, looked up from his plate. What does Milly want of a piano? What's the matter with her organ? She can make some use of that, and play in church. Annie looked flustered. She had begged Alexandra not to say anything about this plan before Oscar, who was apt to be jealous of what his sister did for Lou's children. Alexandra did not get on with Oscar's wife at all. Milly can play in church just the same, and she'll still play on the organ. 
but practicing on it so much spoils her touch. Her teacher says so. Annie brought out with spirit. Oscar rolled his eyes. Well, Millie must have got on pretty good if she's got past the organ. I know plenty of grown folks that ain't, he said bluntly. Annie threw up her chin. She has got on good, and she's going to play for her commencement when she graduates in town next year. Yes, said Alexandra firmly. I think Millie deserves a piano. All the girls around here have been taking lessons for years, but Millie is the only one of them who can ever play anything when you ask her. I'll tell you when I first thought I would like to give you a piano, Millie, and that was when you learned that book of old Swedish songs that your grandfather used to sing. He had a sweet tenor voice, and when he was a young man he loved to sing. I can remember hearing him singing with the sailors down in the shipyard when I was no bigger than Stella here. Pointing to Annie's younger daughter. Millie and Stella both looked through the door into the sitting room, where a crayon portrait of John Bergson hung on the wall. Alexandra had had it made from a little photograph, taken for his friends just before he left Sweden, a slender man of thirty five, with soft hair curling about his high forehead, a drooping moustache, and wondering, sad eyes that looked forward into the distance, as if they already beheld the new world. After dinner, Lou and Oscar went to the orchard to pick cherries. They had neither of them had the patience to grow an orchard of their own, and Annie went down to gossip with Alexandra's kitchen girls while they washed the dishes. She could always find out more about Alexandra's domestic economy from the prattling maids than from Alexandra herself, and what she discovered she used to her own advantage with Lou. On the divide, farmers' daughters no longer went out into service, so Alexandra got her girls from Sweden by paying their fare over. They stayed with her until they married, and were replaced by sisters or cousins from the old country. Alexandra took her three nieces into the flower garden. She was fond of the little girls, especially of Milly, who came to spend a week with her aunt now and then, and read aloud to her from the old books about the house, or listened to stories about the early days on the divide. When they were walking among the flower beds, a buggy drove up the hill and stopped in front of the gate. A man got out and stood talking to the driver. The little girls were delighted at the advent of a stranger, some one from very far away they knew by his clothes, his gloves, and the sharp, pointed cut of his dark beard. The girls fell behind their aunt and peeped out at him from among the castor beans. The stranger came up to the gate and stood holding his hat in his hand, smiling, while Alexandra advanced slowly to meet him. As she approached, he spoke in a low, pleasant voice. Don't you know me, Alexandra? I would have known you anywhere. Alexandra shaded her eyes with her hand. Suddenly she took a quick step forward. Can it be? she exclaimed with feeling. Can it be that it is Carl Lindstrom? Why, Carl, it is! She threw out both her hands and caught his across the gate. Sadie, Milly, run tell your father and Uncle Oscar that our old friend Carl Lindstrom is here. Be quick! Why, Carl, how did it happen? I can't believe this! Alexandra shook the tears from her eyes and laughed. The stranger nodded to his driver, dropped his suitcase inside the fence, and opened the gate. Then you are glad to see me, and you can put me up overnight. I couldn't go through this country without stopping off to have a look at you, 
How little you have changed! Do you know, I was sure it would be like that. You simply couldn't be different. How fine you are! He stepped back and looked at her admiringly. Alexandra blushed and laughed again. But you yourself, Carl, with that beard, how could I have known you? You went away a little boy. She reached for his suitcase, and when he intercepted her, she threw up her hands. You see, I give myself away. I have only women come to visit me, and I do not know how to behave. Where is your trunk? It's in Hanover. I can stay only a few days. I am on my way to the coast. They started up the path. A few days, after all these years. Alexandra shook her finger at him. See this, you have walked into a trap. You do not get away so easy. She put her hand affectionately on his shoulder. You owe me a visit for the sake of old times. Why must you go to the coast at all? Oh, I must. I am a fortune hunter. From Seattle I go on to Alaska. Alaska? She looked at him in astonishment. Are you going to paint the Indians? Paint? The young man frowned. Oh, I'm not a painter, Alexandra. I'm an engraver. I have nothing to do with painting. But on my parlor wall I have the paintings. He interrupted nervously. Oh, watercolor sketches, done for amusement. I sent them to you to remind you of me, not because they were good. What a wonderful place you have made of this, Alexandra. He turned and looked back at the wide, map-like prospect of field and hedge and pasture. I would never have believed it could be done. I'm disappointed in my own eye, in my imagination. At this moment Lou and Oscar came up the hill from the orchard. They did not quicken their pace when they saw Carl. Indeed, they did not openly look in his direction. They advanced distrustfully, and as if they wished the distance were longer. Alexandra beckoned to them. They think I am trying to fool them. Come, boys, it's Carl Lindstrom, our old Carl. Lou gave the visitor a quick, sidelong glance and thrust out his hand. Glad to see you. Oscar followed with, How to do? Carl could not tell whether their offishness came from unfriendliness or from embarrassment. He and Alexandra led the way to the porch. Carl, Alexandra explained, is on his way to Seattle. He is going to Alaska. Oscar studied the visitor's yellow shoes. Got business there? he asked. Carl laughed. Yes, very pressing business. I'm going there to get rich. Engraving's a very interesting profession, but a man never makes any money at it. So I'm going to try the gold fields. Alexandra felt that this was a tactful speech, and Lou looked up with some interest. Ever done anything in that line before? No, but I'm going to join a friend of mine who went out from New York and has done well. He has offered to break me in. Terrible cold winters there, I hear, remarked Oscar. I thought people went up there in the spring. They do, but my friend is going to spend the winter in Seattle, and I am to stay there with him and learn something about prospecting before we start north next year. Lou looked skeptical. Let's see, how long have you been away from here? Sixteen years. You ought to remember that, Lou, for you were married just after we went away. Going to stay with us some time? Oscar asked. A few days, if Alexandra can keep me. I expect you'll be wanting to see your old place, 
Lou observed more cordially. "'You won't hardly know it, but there's a few chunks of your old sod-house left. Alexandra wouldn't never let Frank Shabata plough over it.' Annie Lee, who, ever since the visitor was announced, had been touching up her hair and settling her lace, and wishing she had worn another dress, now emerged with her three daughters and introduced them. She was greatly impressed by Carl's urban appearance, and in her excitement talked very loud and threw her head about. "'And you ain't married yet? At your age now. Think of that. You'll have to wait for Millie. Yes, we've got a boy, too, the youngest. He's at home with his grandma. You must come over to see Mother and hear Millie play. She's the musician of the family. She does pyrography, too. That's burnt wood, you know. You wouldn't believe what she can do with her poker. Yes, she goes to school in town, and she is the youngest in her class by two years. Millie looked uncomfortable, and Carl took her hand again. He liked her creamy skin and happy, innocent eyes, and he could see that her mother's way of talking distressed her. "'I'm sure she's a clever little girl,' he murmured, looking at her thoughtfully. "'Let me see. Ah, it's your mother that she looks like, Alexandra. Mrs. Bergson must have looked just like this when she was a little girl. Does Millie run about over the country as you and Alexandra used to, Annie?' Millie's mother protested. "'Oh, my, no! Things has changed since we was girls. Millie has it very different.' We are going to rent the place and move into town as soon as the girls are old enough to go out into company. A good many are doing that here now. Lou is going into business. Lou grinned. That's what she says. You'd better go get your things on. Ivar's hitching up, he added, turning to Annie. Young farmers seldom addressed their wives by name. It was always you or she. Having got his wife out of the way, Lou sat down on the step and began to whittle. "'Well, what do folks in New York think of William Jennings Bryan?' Lou began to bluster, as he always did when he talked politics. "'We gave Wall Street a scare in ninety-six, all right, and we're fixing another to hand em. Silver wasn't the only issue,' he nodded mysteriously. "'There's a good many things got to be changed. The West is going to make itself heard.' Carl laughed. But surely it did do that, if nothing else. Lou's thin face reddened up to the roots of his bristly hair. Oh, we've only begun. We're waking up to a sense of our responsibilities out here, and we ain't afraid, neither. You fellows back there must be a tame lot. If you'd had any nerve, you'd get it together and march down to Wall Street and blow it up. Dynamited, I mean. With a threatening nod. He was so much in earnest that Carl scarcely knew how to answer him. That would be a waste of powder. The same business would go on in another street. The street doesn't matter. But what have you fellows out here got to kick about? You have the only safe place there is. Morgan himself couldn't touch you. One only has to drive through this country to see that you're all as rich as barons. We have a good deal more to say than we had when we were poor, said Lou threateningly. We are getting on to a whole lot of things. As Ivar drove a double carriage up to the gate, Annie came out in a hat that looked like the model of a battleship. Carl rose and took her down to the carriage, while Lou lingered for a word with his sister. "'What do you suppose he's come for?' he asked, jerking his head toward the gate. "'Why, to pay us a visit. I've been begging him to for years.' Oscar looked at Alexandra. "'He didn't let you know he was coming?' "'No, why should he? I told him to come at any time.' 
Lou shrugged his shoulders. He doesn't seem to have done much for himself, wandering around this way. Oscar spoke solemnly, as from the depths of a cavern. He never was much account. Alexandra left them and hurried down to the gate, where Annie was rattling on to Carl about her new dining-room furniture. "'You must bring Mr. Lindstrom over real soon. Only be sure to telephone me first. she called back, as Carl helped her into the carriage. Old Ivar, his white head bare, stood holding the horses. Lou came down the path and climbed into the front seat, took up the reins, and drove off without saying anything further to anyone. Oscar picked up his youngest boy and trudged off down the road, the other three trotting after him. Carl, holding the gate open for Alexandra, began to laugh. "'Up and coming on the divide, eh, Alexandra?' he cried gaily. End of chapter 3 of part 2